Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is Brad Phelan, author of the short story collection, When the Color Started. Brad, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Jeff, for having me. I, re- I really appreciate the time and the uh, energy and the, and the opportunity to, to, to talk. Thank you. Sure. Well, if someone hasn't yet heard about your short story collection, When the Color Started, can you talk about one or two of the stories in the collection to give us a sense? Yeah, sure. So the collection, uh, there's 14 stories. And, um, you know, I guess I'll talk about the the last story, which is actually called When the Color Started. Uh, it's about a young boy who uh, is in an interesting predicament. His uh, mom is working. He's home alone with his dog. And he has this... Um, mysterious tree or i'm sorry bush in his in his basement that suddenly kind of comes to life and it changes um the situation uh, a little bit of like magical realism um yeah and so that's one story um another story let's see um just kind of looking at it here uh the second story in the collection is, is called wwkd and this is about a young girl uh, who lives in China who has uh, recently lost her mom and is, is grieving and is trying to understand uh, what's happened with that. And um, a new friend kind of uh, comes into her life and, and helps her uh, with that grieving process. So, yeah, those are... Two of the stories, there's 14 in the collection, and, and that's kind of the gist of uh, a few of the stories there. Sure. Well, what is your writing process when you're working on a short story? When you sit down to write a story, do you have the entire story in your head, or do you start with just an image or just the first line? What's that process like for you? Uh, that's, yeah, that's a really good question. I, it kind of depends on the story, which is, uh, maybe kind of a general or vague uh, answer, but, um, you know, sometimes when I was writing this collection, um, sometimes the, the impetus for a story, you know, was a line or an image of a character, or sometimes I had the end of a story in mind or the climax or, um, you know, something something that just kind of, you know, you know, set with me or, or, um, you know, something I couldn't, couldn't let go of. And, and sometimes that is like the start of, of, of a short story. Um, and I, I think with, with the collection, each, each one, each story had a kind of a different, um, you know, uh, story in itself of how it was written, but, I, I think kind of like what you what you said. Sometimes it was a line. Sometimes it was an image. Sometimes it was a a moment in the story. Uh, it just kind of depends. Mm-hmm. Depends on yeah how it goes. So, what was your initial writing journey that led you to writing and getting your first stories and and novel published? So my um, I really just kind of started writing actually when. I was um, in the Peace Corps, actually. Um, a good, a good friend of mine. Uh, he was in a. I was, I was in Namibia in Southwest uh, Africa, and um, 
a good friend of mine and I, we were kind of exchanging letters back and forth. And those letters somehow turned in sometimes into fiction stories. And I ended up writing um, a novel in, in that time that was, uh, you know, just I, I hand wrote it, you know, just totally hand wrote it. And this was 2000, 2002. Uh, and then several years later, um, I kind of picked it back up and I started working on that again and kind of shared it with a friend who was like, oh, you should do something with this. And um, that became the first novel that I um wrote it's called autumn falls that was 2011 and um and then uh at the time i was living in new york city and then i moved to senegal west africa um i'm a i'm a uh, teacher and um in senegal my my process there was i wanted i challenged myself to try to write a story every month like a new story you know, mm-hmm. and, and my goal is like from beginning to end, I want to write a story. And I did that pretty consistently for, uh, you know, a couple of years. And in around 2014 or so, um, I ended up publishing a, um, a collection of short stories. It's called Everything is Inshallah. And um, so that was kind of the finished product of a lot of stories that I had been working on. And then, um, after that time I moved to Beijing, China and, um, I, I, uh, got into an MFA program, the university of Alaska at Anchorage. And I was like dead set on writing a novel and I got into my coursework and, um, I ended up, you know, kind of focusing more on short stories. And so, um, that's kind of the product, uh, when the color started was this kind of a finished product of, you know, several years of working on MFA uh, degree. Um, so that's ki- that's kind of the, the journey and 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 short in summary sure. of the writing that's gone on. And so, was this a low residency program, or did you move to Alaska for the MFA? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was low. Re- it was low res. It was a fantastic program. Um, I'm still in t- touch with quite a few uh, you know professors and mentors, friends. Um, from that it was low yeah low res um yeah fantastic uh you know from for me I, I was able to um you know financially i was able to afford it which i know is not a uh a luxury though you know it, i was very fortunate to be able to to, to do that you know wor- working and also uh being able to do that so yeah it was low res and it was it was fantastic for me it was a really uh positive experience so are you writing more stories now or are you working on another novel? Uh, I'm working, I've been working on a novel um, the last like four years or so, I guess. Um, and um, yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting to, to uh, when the cover started came out in 2020. And so um, I've, I've really, you know, um, you know, it was, it was accepted for publication uh, and, and, 2019 so from that time i really kind of transitioned from short stories to novel writing and it's a totally different kind of shift for me so sometimes when i talk about short stories at the moment i'm like uh it's it's a, it's a little bit um um different because i've been in this novel for the last four years um so yeah I'm, I'm currently working on one and 
I feel really good about it. We'll we'll see. You know, it's 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 still it's a work in progress, but uh, yes. I'm enjoying it. So that's that's that, I guess. Well, what writing advice would you offer for those who are working on their own short stories or novels? Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Yeah, that's a really good question. You know, um, I've been listening to uh, quite a few of the episodes, and so I, I've been thinking about this question. I, you know, I think I think reading reading widely is is really something that I would recommend. Um, I've learned a lot just from from reading, um, and I think um, writing kind of fearlessly, which which is you know sounds kind of uh, you know maybe vague or generally, but, but, um, you know, trying not to limit yourself or like what you can write and, and how you can write. Um, and I'll just give an example. Um, like currently I have two small children. So like my writing time is, is, is very different from when I, you know, previously had no kids. So, um, you know, I just, I, you just try to adapt and try to, you know, change up the, change it up and, and just get it in when you can, you know, just try to set aside a sacred time and, and, um, and, you know, chip away at it as you can. And then the other thing I would say is, is to try to find a network, like, um, whatever that means for you, if it's a friend, if it's, um, you know, trying to go on to some courses or MFA or whatever, but I've, I've certainly gained a lot from, um, establishing like a community of, of writers and friends and people I can trust upon to, to give feedback and just support. Well, what novels or short story collections have you read recently that you enjoyed? Yeah. Um, I think, let's see. So, um, in, in, in 2021, uh, I read, I read actually, and not like uh brag or anything, but I read a hundred books. I was uh, a friend, a good friend of mine. Um, in 2020, you know, during pandemic, um, uh, the kind of the part of the pandemic, uh, a friend, a good friend of mine, family friend read a hundred books. And I was like, ah, oh, I can, I, I can do that. I, I you know, I want to try to do that. 
Um, and so in 2021, I, I ended up doing that. And, um, you know, now I'm in 2022 and I've only read about three or four books and it's just, um, <laughs> so I don't know, I guess I learned uh, some, something from that, but, um, you know, 2021, I've kind of written a list here. Um, I, I try to mix it up with fiction, poetry, um, nonfiction, um, a few of the like novels that I read this, this book called braised pork by on you, um, phenomenal book. Um, you know, I, I'm a big fan of James Baldwin. I, I return to his work often. Um, mm-hmm. probably my favorite book that I read every year at some point is Giovanni's room. Um, there's some books on writing the, the, the writing life by Ann Dillard and then, uh, letters to a young novelist by Mario Vargas, uh, uh, Lasa Losa is is both of those books are phenomenal, and then uh, I love reading poetry. Like I I I, uh, I don't write poetry very much. I, I feel like poets poets are on a whole another um, a whole another level of of uh, you know I don't even know how to ex- explain, but I, I love reading poetry. And one I read Finna by Nate Marshall and uh, Un American by. Uh, Afiza Jeter. And uh, these are books that really, you know, stood out to me. I'm also, you know, I'm I'm a teacher um, Mm -hmm. by day. So a recent book that I read is called Ratchedemic by uh, Dr. Christopher Emden. Um, And then Cast by Isabel Wilkerson. So some of the books that have been profoundly helpful for me, um, just with thinking, with um, reflecting, with uh, with writing as well, you know, so again, I, going back to the advice, you know, try to read as widely as you can for sure. Sure. Well, where can people find you online if they want to learn more about you and your short story collection and your earlier novels? Yeah. Um, you, uh, it's my uh, website, bradfordfiland.com. Um, you, you know, Amazon, Goodreads, Barnes and Noble, anywhere you buy books, you can find when the colors started for sure. Um, and, uh, my, my first two works were actually self-published, which is, mm-hmm. um, another, you know, kind of, um, way to get into, you know, writing. Uh, I, I published, I'm, I'm from North Carolina. So I published with a small press, um, called Chapel Hill Press. And it was, a, it was an outstanding, um, experience, you know, and it was something that, you know, I needed at the time it was really helpful and beneficial. And, and so those two works are a little bit more limited as far as where you can find them, but everything, Perfect. you know, I've, I've had, um, several of the short stories and when the colors started published in various online magazines. Um, so you can find everything on bradfordfiland.com. I've also written some essays. Um, uh, most have been with, um, the, the, the good men projects, um, and and some of my essays uh, typically write about race or identity, fatherhood. So um, all my work, though, can be found on the website, bradfordfiland.com. That's great. Well, again, we've been speaking with Bradford Filan, author of the short story collection, When the Color Started. The collection is on sale now. And Brad, thanks for doing this interview. Thank you so much. I really appreciate the time. And thank you so much. Yeah, absolutely. Now stay tuned as Bradford Filan 
Now, stay tuned as Bradford Phelan reads his story, Father Like Lion. This audio was produced by Carl Straharsky. Father Like Lion. When I came home from studying at a friend's house one night, mom was in the kitchen cleaning up a mess that looked like a tornado made it. Her face was swollen, but she wasn't crying. She had a glass of gin near her. I ran straight to the garage because I knew that's where dad would be. He was always in the garage drinking and fixing stuff. I shoved him and told him to pick on someone his own size. I was in the 10th grade. Clayton, he said, you don't want to start a fight you can't finish. That's the best advice he ever gave me that he really meant, and that line will stick with me forever. Don't start a fight you can't finish. Dad didn't take too nice to me shoving him like I did, so he flung himself at me. I was already taller and much quicker than him. I bear hugged him and then swallowed him in a full Nelson. I told him if he hit mom like that again, I'd kill him. I held him tighter and thought about going ahead and doing it. He said, mercy, son, mercy, I can't barely breathe. I let him go. He coughed like he had a sponge stuck in his throat and then begged me to forgive him. I pointed at him and said, don't you ever do that again. I mean it. That night, I thought I was invincible. Before my son was born, my wife asked me what type of father I wanted to be. She was very pregnant. It was after church where we had been holding hands and praying together to a God I wasn't sure I believed in anymore. I thought about her question, then thought about sin. I thought, first, I want to be a father who doesn't get drunk. I want to be a father who doesn't watch porn, except for when the wife wants to, of course. I don't want to be a father who yells and screams at nothing. I don't want to be a father who does bad, even if everyone else is doing bad, too. It's funny, I was thinking about fatherhood in the negative. All the things I didn't want. All the things I was convinced I saw in my own father. It wasn't always like that. When I was two or three, he'd scoop me up in his arms, cross one leg over the other, set me on the instep of his boot, and bounce me up and down like I was galloping on a horse. Hold on to the horsey, he'd say again and again, bouncing me so I laughed until my belly burned warm. There were the fishing trips that I can still see in my mind like it was yesterday. I didn't like the messy worm hooking. I liked just sitting there with Dad, being quiet on the bank of the lake, all the sounds and smells and the stillness. I liked it too when Dad took out the bucket of catfish feed and we threw out handfuls at a time and watched it sprinkle on the water. It was enough for me to just toss it out like that to the fish to eat for free. My son doesn't look like me. I'm white. He's black. I've got blue eyes. He's got brown. I told my wife that more than anything, I wanted to be a fair and honest father. 
You'll be more than that, she said. Growing up, I only remember playing ball with dad once in the cul-de-sac. I told him I wanted to shoot some hoops before practice. You can't just play ball all day, he'd said. I was on the way out the door, the ball already spinning in my hands, but mom told dad to hush and put some shoes on. He put on his work boots. I only remember dad always wearing work boots or dress shoes, never anything else. We were in the father-son Indian guides program, and I remember one year our tribe took a trip to the coast to look for sharks' teeth and to see the landmarks where the pilgrims and the Native Americans supposedly lived peacefully, for a time at least. And my friends and I laughed at dad, even though he didn't see us, because he still wore his polished penny loafers out on the beach, even though he was shirtless and in his swim trunks. My Indian name was Running Deer. I can't remember what dad's name was. I don't recall how old I was, but one day, dad said my thumb sucking had to stop. Every night from then on, before bed, he painted clear nail polish on my thumbs and told me only crybabies sucked their thumbs. When I was in first grade, my best friend and I thought it'd be funny to make our own version of Miss Buckley's song she recently taught us, which was Old MacDonald Had a Farm. We sang about the female body and all its parts. I don't even know how we could have known those words then. That night, after Mom got off the phone with Miss Buckley, Dad told me to lie across his lap and not squirm. If you do, he said, you'll get more than what I plan on giving you. He had a ping pong paddle in one hand and lowered my trousers with his other, so my buttocks sat bare and naked in the air. I could hear mom crying in the background as I yelled to dad that I was sorry and would never say bad words ever again. When my son was finally born, I started to believe in God again. I didn't want to watch, but in the moments before he emerged into the world, the doctor propped a mirror in between my wife's legs. I was by her side, yelling, push! and letting her squeeze my hand like it was a stress ball. I saw my son's head pass through the birth canal, and I couldn't help but wonder how impossible it all seemed. He was almost seven pounds. After that night, I put Dad in a full Nelson. Mom and Dad split up for a good few months later. They had already been legally separated for a while, even though I didn't know. I always thought Dad was working. I knew him to be an accountant. But he was at the farm instead, living his other life, sleeping with his girlfriend named Michelle, who was much younger than mom. To dad, the farm was acres and acres of resurrection and Jesus Christ. He thought he could just start over and be a new man there, a new dad. Once mom and dad's divorce was final, I didn't visit him until college. And mom never pushed the issue with me either. Dad still visited me when I was in 11th and 12th grade. He'd drive down on weekends every once in a while. He even made a few weekday trips down to Raleigh just to watch me play ball, despite his thinking that the city was all a rat race. I was on varsity then, killing it, three-pointer after three-pointer. I got an earring and Dad asked if I was a fag. A what? I said. It was a Sunday morning, 
We were at Waffle House eating breakfast. He was getting ready to drive back up to the farm, which was four hours northwest of Raleigh. A fag, he said. Are you one of these? He flopped his wrist out into the air. Are you tutti fruity, a Nancy boy, a fudge packer? Do you like men like that? I laughed at him then, and I'll never forget the way he was looking at me, like he was ready to say goodbye to me forever. Dad, I said, faggots wear him in the other ear. I grabbed my right earlobe. He shrugged his shoulders and took a sip of his steaming coffee. Well, I didn't know, he said. I was just making sure. He still looked at me hard, like if he stared hard enough, he'd find something that would prove I wasn't once one of his sperms swimming around in mom's uterus. The thing is, dad and I look just like each other, and I can't help that. I have his nose and his hair and the mole that sits on the far left side of my cheek that I have to shave every few days. When I was a senior in college, mom called and said dad was in the hospital. I hadn't heard her say dad in a long time. She never asked me about him. We didn't have reason to talk about him. I didn't even think she had his phone number at the farm. He's been in an accident, she said. Dad fell from the loft in the barn. I figured he was drunk or had been drinking. But it was the floorboards that were loose. He stepped right through and fell more than 15 feet directly on his back. He was lucky to be alive. At the hospital, everyone looked at me like they were looking at a younger version of him. I could feel it. Dad's girlfriend, Michelle, stepped out to get him something, which I took his code to give us time to talk. I felt sorry as hell for him lying there on the hospital bed and all those tubes were plugged in him. Well, he said, I guess this is what you've been waiting for. I rolled a metal stool by his bedside then and sat. What do you mean? You hate me, he said. And I know it. Ever since, I don't hate you, Dad, I said, even though I did. You're just hurting. How do you feel? He laughed then. How do you think I feel? Being with Dad made me think about everything bad I'd ever done in my life. He was like a reminder to me of my own sinning. At that time, when I was drinking my way through school, I'd been dating this girl named Kelly, who I could easily guilt into having sex with me. It was easy because, you know, I'd say, lying hugged up with her like a pretzel in her bed or mine. You've already gone so far, Kel, and you're so wet. And having blue balls is hard and hurts. She always drank as much as I did and even more some nights. I'd keep kissing her until she'd say, okay, or fell asleep, and then I'd just penetrate her anyway, with or without a condom, I didn't care. It was easy, and I could get away with saying shit like, let me just put it inside you for a little bit, and then I'd just do it, even if she didn't say yes, and then I'd laugh about it the next day and tell her I was drunk and so was she, but I knew I wasn't, and I convinced her it was all right. Better yet, I could convince her 
She was the one who wanted it more. I wondered what dad said to guilt mom and what all he made her do. I visited dad every weekend when he was laid up at the hospital. I didn't really have an excuse. My college was just an hour from the hospital where he'd been helicoptered in after the accident. I took Kelly a few times and dad spoke to her like he was a gentleman. One night, after we returned from seeing him, we were both real drunk. And she went on and on about how nice dad was and how I looked just like him. And I shoved her into a wall and told her to shut the fuck up. She sat up against the wall and started laughing at me. I punched a hole in the wall then, right by her head. And before I stormed out of the apartment, said, you stupid bitch. My son is close to two now. I like to take him on walks. It doesn't matter where. And when it's just me and him on a walk in the neighborhood, I let him lead me. He'll walk a few steps, look back at me and smile, make some noise like da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da, and maybe point to something around us and then go back to walking. I do the only thing I can do, which is smile back and talk to him and bend down and kiss him on the forehead and follow him wherever he wants to go. I pick him up when he falls and distract him when he's going somewhere he shouldn't or can't yet. After college, I had to leave. Mom understood, which is the toughest part for me now when I think about my parents. All that time and all my energy, all my anger and hate, were geared toward dad when I should have given my mom more of me. The day before I left for the Peace Corps, she drove me to REI and spent way too much money on a pair of hiking boots I absolutely did not need. You're going to Africa for two years, she said. You need a good pair of boots. She bought me a few other things too, a new backpack, clothes that were made of something synthetic and sweat-proof, energy bars, an Nalgene bottle. I called dad the night before I left. He was back home at that point, moving slowly with his recovery. He was walking and all, but he'd have to take it easy for a long time. That meant farm work was out of the picture. He went back to consulting on finances and taxes. He told me he and Michelle were going to get married. Congratulations, I said. You'll probably have a brother or sister when you get back, he said. I felt even worse for him then, but I didn't say anything. After the silence was too much for him, he said, I love you, son. Be safe over there. I said, goodbye, Dad, and hung up. The boots were of no use, but I never told Mom that. I didn't realize the tropical savanna would be so sandy. I was picturing high green grasses waving in the African breeze, red clay soil and magnificent mahogany forests, lions and elephants. Instead, I got village footpaths of deep sand and weak soil that was barely fertile enough to feed the village year-round. I lived on a homestead with a family that harvested millet and drank goat milk at every meal. My room on the homestead was a thatched hut. I was a teacher at a small village school, but a teacher of what I wasn't sure. I had never been a teacher, never taught anybody anything in my life. Every night, I sat and watched the sunset. The sun. The sun. 
Is it any surprise it's a homonym? At dusk, I laughed at the sun drooping below the horizon. The sun. Tate Mjego, the father of my village homestead, reminded me of dad. Stoic and hard, unwavering and determined. One night, after the sun had already set, he came to my hut, knocked on the door and said, Clay, Clay, Clay. No one in the village had figured out how to say my name correctly, as I had not yet figured out how to ask for simple things from them or make simple conversation with them in their language. Tate Mjego's voice was hurried and loud. I went to the entrance of the hut, and there he was standing firm and tall. He held a sturdy piece of rubber that must have been ripped from an old tire. Eh no, Tate, I said. Yes, father. Mjego was his last name. Behind him, I noticed, was his son, Paul. It was barely light out, but the sky was full of stars, and Paul's face was blooded and swollen. I looked at Tate and said in English, without hesitation, what's wrong with Paul? Why is he bleeding like that? I talked with my hands and arms, too, so he could tell I was in shock and meant whatever it was I was saying. When I first met Tate Mjego, he told me he had been a freedom fighter. He said he was one of the first sons of the independence. He spoke German and Dutch and Afrikaans and a little English on top of the seven or eight African dialects of his nation. He's still you. He's still you. He said there at my hut that night. And then he took my Sony Discman from his pants pocket. I hadn't even noticed it was gone. I beat him for you. I looked at Paul and then Tate. My heart sank then. Why had I brought a Sony Disman to a tiny African village anyway? So I could listen to songs in my past, close my eyes, and masturbate to all the girls I wish I could have had sex with in my hut in the African wilderness? It's okay, I said, which I quickly realized wasn't the right thing to say. Yes, Tate said. Okay, I know, I know. You, now, your turn. You beat him. Leggy, leggy. He handed me the disman, then pushed the rubber whip toward me and stepped out of the way from Paul, gesturing for me to beat him. I didn't take the piece of rubber. Paul just stood there, like he was waiting for it, expecting me to whip him, as his father had done to him. Paul stood there, helpless and still, waiting for me to take revenge, for me to take rage and anger all out on him. He was silent, waiting. It was in that moment that I realized I did love my father. I had no choice but to love him. He was my father. Despite it all, he was my father. In high school, I used to steal shit from the mall. This was before everywhere had cameras and everything had sensor tags. Usually I just steal clothing. My friends would make requests and even pay me, and then there I'd be, in some dressing room, layering my outfits with Tommy Hilfiger polo shirts and stuffing socks and fancy boxer shorts down my pants legs. The thing was, I didn't give a fuck, and I thought that was being a man. That was my mindset when I walked out of the stores. I was just like Johnny Depp and Blow, 
walking through the airport with a suitcase full of cocaine. I stopped all that one day when I watched a black man get wrestled down to the floor on a J.C. Penny. I don't know what he did, but I knew I was better than getting wrestled down to the ground by a mall cop. I didn't have the words to tell Tate Mjego that he didn't need to be Paul. I looked at Paul and said I was sorry. I repeated it again and again in English. I'm so sorry, Paul. This wasn't supposed to happen. I shouldn't have even brought the stupid thing here. He just looked at me like he didn't understand, like I was not one of him, but I was. I am too, a son. Tatiam Jago was confused. He was angry. He pumped his fist at Paul again, and Paul flinched like his father was a starved lion. Tate looked at me like I was weak, and I was. I was nothing but weak and would be forever. He tried to make my hand take the rubber whip again, but I told him no. I apologized to Tati Mjago. I said it again and again. Umbili, umbili, Tati Gwanje. I'm sorry, my father. I yelled it. I yelled it again to Paul. Umbili, umbili, my brother. I yelled it to the stars. Umbili, umbili, umbili. Twinkling above in the forever African sky until they left me there alone in my hut. I am running deer. I don't know what demons dad lives with but I know mine. It was all a fight, and I couldn't finish it then, and I never will. When it's just me and my son walking in the neighborhood, when I pick him up, I kiss him hard and often, and I think maybe my black son will be gay, and that will be the finest thing in the world, as long as he's fair and honest. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member? For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.